the Evolved Succeed podcast where founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders and experts are interviewed to explore the link between personal and business success. We will also investigate and establish the need for ongoing personal development, accountability and support. The objective is to inspire you, the audience, to be better in life and in business. Welcome to the Evolved Succeed podcast. My guest this week is Barry Kick, a former director and current shareholder of Evolve, and now a business coach and consultant. Barry's entrepreneurial journey began in 2006 when he co-founded Linzar, an award-winning television brand that went on to be stopped by over 700 retailers, including John Lewis. The company was eventually sold to an Australian buyer in 2016. I've known Barry for a long time and our business relationship and personal relationship has extended beyond his involvement at Evolve. He's a curious and enthusiastic individual with a real passion for entrepreneurship and people. Therefore, I thought it would be great for him to share his story, the highs and lows of his own personal entrepreneurial journey. In this podcast, Barry talks about a particularly difficult period early on in Linzar's history. You know, I remember then Sarah coming in saying you know we've got the court court date coming up we've got money flowing out like you wouldn't believe no overheads because there's only two of us and we're working from home and we've got this space in the warehouse that the guy's not charging us for which is a great guy and Sarah came and says oh by the way I'm pregnant as well his go-to technique for de-stressing for me you know the gym is the gym's an outlet for me and I think without that you know you can find yourself in quite a you know, mentally a bad place and what he's most proud of from his journey with Linzar. Just level of support and loyalty that existed within the market for the Linzar brand. And still to this day, you know, it's regarded by its customers as a great brand. If you want to know more about Evolve, then please do go to evolvemembers.com. But for now, let's get on with the show. Barry, welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Thank you, Warren. Nice to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too. So for our listeners, I just thought we'd just kick off with a bit of background. You had a really successful business development career in the corporate world, working for some... I did. ...very large consumer electronics companies. Yep. Uh, having come out of uni. Uh, but in 2006, you and your co-founder, Terry, founded Linzar, uh, a TV and consumer electronics uh, business. What inspired you to do this? Because that was quite a change from successful corporate world to going to start our own TV brand. Yeah, I think when we decided to do it and told people, there was quite a few naysayers. There was straight jackets with our names on yeah. uh, waiting for us. And um, you know, I think we tried to get the uh, the girls on board by naming it after them because the yeah. name comes from Lynn and Sarah Linzar. Okay. And um, so no big brand creatives involved in that there one. There was there no agencies involved. No, um, just a large sheet of paper and <laughs> many uh, failed names. And finding something to put on the front of a TV is yeah. quite hard because it actually has to sit there right in the middle of yeah. a device that's going to be in front of people in their living room or wherever for hopefully an extended period of time yeah. and you know all the dot coms have gone all the you know names that might be suitable you think yeah. would be uh, have been trademarked so that's um, that's a bit of a challenge but you know we we obviously knew the market and i think yeah. that's the you know that's the first starting point was thompson uh, was the company that we um, that Terry and i worked for 
we were dealing with the big customers. You know, I'd worked on some big projects to get uh, TiVo into the market uh, with Sky, uh, launched the set-top boxes that Thompson built into the marketplace, which went absolutely crazy. So, you know, I had a lot of experience. Terry had a ton of experience because he'd been in the industry for, you know, uh, yeah. longer than me, 20, nearly 20 years longer than me, actually. Um, working for Akai and all these other brands okay. that, uh, yeah, you know, people those. Have I had Akai and little <clears throat> micro stereos. Yeah, big hi-fi brand, you know, yeah. and everything else. So, um, and Thompson had gone from selling Ferguson in the UK to selling Thompson in the UK. And it was, you know, probably it was north of a hundred million uh, pounds yeah. worth of business in the UK. Uh, but we were part of a bigger European sales operation so the experience of being part of that was was actually yeah. quite useful at the time as well and um you know as time went past um you know thompson shrunk from 55 people in a nice shiny office to i think three or three of us left working out of the technicolor offices near heathrow thinking we could probably do this on our own and you know we can buy product from factories we know people that um, have left the business and gone to work for some of these uh, one one supplier in particular and um you know we sort of hung on waiting for redundancy and then it came and i was 29 uh, i wanted to set up my own business uh by the time i was 30 and um the, i suppose the idea behind that was i would make all my mistakes and then yeah go and start a business it turns out that's not the case <laughs> and we then you know I suppose, got the redundancy and said, right, off we go. And I just moved down to Dorset, actually, so I knew nobody down here. Uh, we'd taken on, a, you know, at the time, a big mortgage and I uh, found myself redundant, uh, yeah. wondering whether, you know, the next thing would be successful. Okay. And that was the birth of Linza. Well, that was then, um, you know, we said, let's go and, you know, go ahead and start doing this, start right. talking to customers, found some product from a factory, which is a Turkish factory. So where do you start there? I mean, you know, is it that you approach the factories, they have products, you look to put branding on that, and then, then you work with them to develop bespoke products? Or? Yeah, so, you know, when you first start, the time, so 2006 was a very different time, I think, in terms of the risk appetite that um, that large businesses had, because obviously it's pre-crash, pre-crisis yeah. and everything else. And, um, you know, we knew the UKMD of uh, a very big Turkish manufacturer who produce TVs for all sorts of known brands. So they're about they're responsible for about a quarter of the product that ends up in the European market. And he said to us, look, I want to sell more product. I know you guys really well. Um, we said, yeah, okay, we want to sell some product. We think it would be good to develop our own brand just so that we can differentiate it in certain ways in the market. And actually we looked at the market and we understood it well and said, um, you know, what are the parts of the market that we can add the most value to? We can't add a lot of value to supermarkets. We can't add a lot of value to um, some of the big names that were around at the time. You know, obviously Dixon's, uh, Curry's, uh, but Comet was still in business and and, mm. and others. And you know, you, you, but you had still around forty percent of the market that was uh, independents, buying groups, and some uh, retailers like John Lewis. So yeah. uh, they're actually the the customers that we went after, right. and we positioned the brand around those customers and understood actually what was of value to those customers. And I've talked about this before in other uh, places and understanding where your value lies as a supplier to these customers in a market, which is saturated, you yeah. know, commoditized, dominated by some very, very big multinationals. You know, I mean, you're competing against Samsung, Panasonic, Sony, yeah. you know, these mad He's brands. multi-million, I mean, billion-pound corporations and you're yeah. trying to carve your niche. So. Yeah, absolutely. And they're, and they're 
I mean, their yeah. weekly marketing budgets were bigger than our turnover, probably yeah. at our biggest. <laughs> so, you know, you've really got to be quite clever about how yeah. you approach the market, how you, um, you know, I suppose add value to that customer. So we you know, got ourselves into a position where, and I remember it vividly, um, we'd ordered some products, some small screen products, so that's sort of 19 inch at the time, 24 okay. inch maybe. They come in full containers, so you're talking a 20 foot container. Right. The fact that they were flat screen helped a lot because you've got to manhandle these things out the back of the container. Yeah. So it turns up, you crack it open, and we had a guy who um, I'm still – um, in awe of now called George Dove, who owned a warehouse. I think he'd sold the business itself, but kept the property. And that was up in um, near Farnborough. So he used to hire a van, drive up there, unload the stock, me and Terry. And George used to help out a bit and his son as well. Load some of it into a van and then some of it into the warehouse. And we'd try and sell it all before it arrived because you've yeah, got a bit of a lead time. You kind of want to pre-sell it particularly because of those the days. boats and the water delivering the products and yeah, all of those we, things. Which we, we, we're at that time trying to back-to-back yeah. what we owe the factory. Yeah. And then obviously we're creating a margin. But, you know, you're responsible for the warranty of the product. You know, yeah. there's lots of other considerations that go into the final kind of P&L that you yeah. build. And it's quite an oper- it became quite an operationally... Uh, sophisticated or complicated mm. business because of that. So, yeah, that's how it started. You know, by the laptop, came up with the brand, did all the registration, did all that kind of stuff, found a guy who um, knew a bit about websites, got him to do that, got um, Dave Ayers at Creative Byte to come up with the okay, logo no itself, yeah. still friends, still good mates with him now. And then, yeah, got the stuff sold. You know, we're, Terry and I were both yeah. selling. You know, we knew the customers. Um, but, you know, suddenly you're forced into a situation where you got a, I don't know what a chart of accounts was. Um, right. And I got our accountant at the time to come around and, and show me how to use Sage. Yeah. And really went from there. Um, just, and as many of us that start a business, we are everything, can't we? In your case, you're an accountant, warehouseman, yep. salesman, MD, delivery driver, the whole brand shebang, developer, yeah. and all of those. Yeah, kind yeah. Of and we, you know, we, we, we were successful. There's a lead time into getting that sort of product. Um, the first deal we ever did was with Pontins Holiday Camps, and that was the only tube TVs we ever sold. Right. Um, and that was great because every Monday we'd get another order where there'd been some sort of uh, event and uh, a small disturbance <laughs> in the uh, within the accommodation and they'd need some more t- TVs. Um, so you know, that was kind of a, a good opening yeah. order, and that sort of paid, up, paid for some of the setup costs that we incurred initially because it was a very small setup cost. And then the main stock started arriving from about the beginning of September. Yeah. And how did it feel? Because obviously you founded the company with Terry, yeah. who I know you're very close friends with still to this day, but you've gone from very much a kind of working relationship with somebody, you know, within a corporate, everybody getting their salaries, to starting a business together. And how did mm. that feel? Well, that that's an interesting question because I remember sitting down with Terry and him saying to me, look, you know, this is what I'm earning right now. Uh, you know, he'd been my boss at Thompson. Uh, times because I'd worked in different, I'd worked in marketing, I worked in sales, I'd worked um, directly for the MD on different projects. But to go from that into okay, well now we've now got this business together, and we were, you know, we we always got along well, we we're good friends. Um, to then say, well, it's fifty fifty. This thing's got to produce a certain amount of profit in order to, you know, yeah. keep sustain the wheels lifestyle. turning, stay yeah. sustain sustain everything. Yeah, we just kind of went from there, really. And I think having Terry on board, I mean, as it turned out, as we went through different successes and different challenges over the next 10 years, uh, having Terry there was uh, a really important mm-hmm. thing, I think, for you know, for each other. 
because it kept it gives you a level of support and understanding that you just can't get from anyone else. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a, there is a, a real value to that. And how did you carve out your roles for, that you then, I suppose not in the early days, everybody's doing everything, mm. but how do you carve out your roles with a kind of co-founder so that you're actually not all doing the same thing and you're working kind of in better synergy with each other? Yeah. So I think t- Terry's better than me at some of the, sales management and he was kind of working as the business grew he was managing more of the sales team and i would get involved with that as well Um, and i'm happy to do that but i think what we found was there were certain customers that i was a little bit closer to certain customers that terry was a little bit closer to but we could both manage each other's uh, customers as required so you know if someone went on holiday it was not an issue but you know the fact there was a wide enough range of customers there to um work on meant that there was a sort of natural splitting of focus yeah we both focused on the factory but terry perhaps a little bit more so as we went through over time and i became a little bit more focused on china i think okay so you know we we naturally just found the splits and the fact that i was running it all on the laptop at the time yeah and i've i suppose got the skills to and i developed the skills quite quickly to get on top of that and that's more my bag, I think, than Terry's anyway. The Terry's, kind of operations. Yeah, he's, kind of... he's he's not the sort of detail guy, um, yeah. perhaps, that, that, that I am at times. So um, it just sort of just, worked. Yeah. Just found your own rhythm by the sound We found of our own rhythm. Um, our first employee. So we, we managed to do something like, I think it was about 1.2 million quid's worth of business in our first year. So right. it wasn't a full year. Um, and thought, God, this is, this is going this is quite, it. This is all right, yeah. And I think we found right the way from the beginning there was some because you're doing suddenly quite a lot of business when a problem comes along it tends to be a, a sort of a bigger problem mm. um so we had an issue with a customer that was buying product um for is a distributor in, in northern ireland actually and um there was, there was a 26 inch product and just about every single one went wrong so the factory should sort that out right yeah. but you know getting the factory to do anything is always a challenge and you're dealing with you know you're in a boxing ring with a a far bigger uh you know partner and we put a lot of effort into that relationship over the years because we knew how, how important it was to the success of the business you know there's not many places that build tvs apart from china and this one factory in in europe so you know which is you know is a is a, is yeah. a problem um so you know we had that that came along in the first year we had a uh, various issues through time where we tried other factories and were let down you know we, we actually had to sue a taiwanese factory i don't know if you ever knew this no so uh we were so we, we did 1.8 million so 1.2 million the first year and we were we should have done over 3 million in the second year we didn't we did 1.8 yeah and the reason for that was we placed a huge order <clears throat> with this Taiwanese factory that was setting up in the UK um, and, you know, big company, great product, great prices, all the rest of it. And I think we'd come off the back of being stung on these 26 inch that had this uh, sort of fault. So we were looking for other suppliers, found this one. They, and I remember I was in Berlin with Terry and um, we'd been to the IFA show, which is a big consumer electronics show over there. And we had a call from the, um, the MD saying, sorry, we haven't got any panels. So the panel goes, obviously, it's the main component yeah. in the television. 
and they didn't have any. So uh, we'd signed it all up and locked it all down. And two days before, they were asking for the brand artwork and confirming that production was going ahead. So um, we went into the peak season because you do about 60% of your business in the fourth quarter of the year. So that's leading um, up to Christmas. So leading up to Christmas, yeah. yeah. Um, so we were expecting delivery of product, I think, about three weeks later. And they turned around and said, we haven't got any. And you'd pre-sold product? Pre-sold it all. We sold it all to... Funny enough, um, there was a, a big supermarket retailer okay. for their online business that was $2 million worth of product. And at the time, $2 million was, yeah. it was about two to the pound at the time. So it's about a million quid's worth. So there's there's the hole. Yeah. And, um, you know, we basically went into the fourth quarter, our key selling point as a two-year-old business with no product. Right. Apart from this little thing called a pocket surfer, which we were selling, well, we worked with it created a partnership with a Canadian company and it was pre-smartphones. So um, it was a little clamshell device that used to do your email and, and browse the web okay. very cheaply. And it was all branded Linzar. looked fantastic. I've still got one in, at home. And we sold the rights to that back to the Canadians um, or rather the main distributor in the UK about eight, eight ten months later. Which is the right thing to do because the smartphones then yeah, all came out. Technology anyway, was moving on and moved we, very yeah, fast in those yeah, industries. Yeah, well, that, was, that was you know it was a, a small transaction, but it was it was good. Um, so yeah, we we kind of then had that as the second year's fun and games. Uh, you know, we're selling the product, yeah. we're doing all the right things in the marketplace. We're looking after our suppliers. We're learning kind of right feet, hands into it, yeah. and everything. My brother, um, he finished uni and then joined the company as our first employee. Yeah. Because we were manning this helpline trying to help customers set their tellies up, solve well, retail around problems, running around doing everything else. And the, the helpline became quite the bane of our existence. And um, and Terry was doing more of that than me yeah. because I was doing all the kind of admin within the business, yeah. you know. So he was, you know, a bit fed up with the helpline. And we got my brother in. So he was great and he stayed with us um, all the way through. And sort of managed in the end the, the sort of operational side of the business, um, you know, really really well. And he's gone on to do some amazing things with mm-hmm. other, other businesses since. That was year two. Year three was the currency crashed. Okay. So we obviously had uh, product then coming in, going into all our customers, um, and we, um, I think the pa- the pound went from one point nine ish to one. 130, 135, 140. We weren't large enough to have been hedging at that so, point. So well, we hedged as much as we could. Okay. So we'd always, we were aware that there was a, a risk to this. Yeah. But as a small business, you know, a relatively young two, two three-year-old business, there's not a lot you can do. You can't hedge millions of dollars yeah. worth of exposure. Um, so, uh, yeah, we got stung quite significantly. I think we lost something like 300,000 quid in three months that year. Um, and at the same time, so the problem we had the year before with the lack of supply from the mm. Taiwanese, we sued the Taiwanese multinational, right. the two of us. As little old Linzer. Uh, as little old Linzer. A little young Linzer. <laughs> yeah, we sued them and they settled out of court for six figures with us. Right. Um, and that came through right before Christmas of that year. So we lost all the money that we lost on the exchange rate wasn't all made up yeah. you know, but there was a gain there. Yeah. but but there was enough from the out of court settlement which was right to the wire i mean we were into mm. bournemouth you know crown court whatever it's called to go and have a meeting with the judge who clearly hadn't read anything that had been put in front of him so it's a very stressful thing to be part of 
the settlement then kind of kept the business going. So, you know, all businesses go through these times yeah. where it's just, it's just, you have to sail a little bit close to the wind in order to keep the forward momentum. Yeah. Otherwise you sink yeah. and, um, you know, patch the holes up and keep, keep all that happening. But and how were you dealing with that adversity? I mean, how both you and Terry were dealing with that? Cause they're, you know, they, they are significant challenges, aren't they? They, they are. And, um, you know, there's, there's certain moments in your life where you, remember i can remember quite vividly and that and one of them i was sat in the office at home you know we had this exchange rate going against us um, so this was happening and i was you know flat out busy i mean really really busy moving thousands unloading thousands and thousands and thousands of tvs to go to john lewis and other because yeah. we're into john lewis by this point as well to go out to these customers and knowing that we're losing you know giving away five pound ten pound you know whatever the amount was per box you know we were losing money and, um, you know, the relationships we had with our customers were good because we managed to use some of those relationships um, to offset some of that. So, you know, we didn't lose as much as we might have done had we had a more difficult relationship, yeah. a more antagonistic relationship with a customer. And I've always been an avid negotiator. I think it's really something that's always mm. been in my blood and my father's and my grandfather's, if you look back through our history. But, you know, I remember then Sarah coming in saying, you know, uh, we've got the court court date coming up. We've got money flowing out like you wouldn't believe. No overheads because there's only two of us and we're working from home and we've got this space in the warehouse that the guy's not charging us for, which is a great guy. And Sarah came and says, oh, by the way, I'm pregnant as well. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, I remember that moment quite yeah. vividly. And I think to answer your question, um, having Terry was great because, you know, you can yeah. kind of... You weren't, al- you, were, you weren't alone. You weren't not alone and you can... Talk, I think talking about those problems is so critically important yeah. and talking about them with somebody that's so connected to it yeah. that has maybe a similar outlook in lots of ways, you know, quite a positive yeah. thing. For me, you know, the gym is the gym's an outlet for me. Yeah. And I think without that, you know, you, you can find yourself in quite a you know, mentally a bad place. And there's lots of things that, you know, there's lots of great things that happened with Linzar, um, you know, partnerships, awards, you know, we made some some good money uh, yeah. at times. Went through a digital switchover, which you know was a challenge for the business because suddenly you're selling tons of TVs and loads of people need help because you know they're going from analog to digital in 2011. And we kind of capital capitalized on all those opportunities and you know, ended up with a big you know, owning a big warehouse and all yeah. the great stuff that we ended up doing. But at the same time, you know, you've got every single year it seemed to be something. There Quite some, chunky would come yeah. along. You think, well, I can't. What could I do about the exchange? Well, I, could, I can hedge, and I became, um, you know, that experience forced me to become more of an expert in foreign currency and what could be done. So actually, throughout the following however many years, we probably made the money back that we'd lost mm. through some intelligent currency planning and um, some work around that. Um, and that I think is, I think is, you know, it's, it's become a bit of a mantra for me. Is that you know, whatever challenge you face, it becomes the seed of the next improvement. And if you can take that challenge and then say, well, actually, this is going to become something better for me in the future. Then and it's that learn from it, isn't it? It's the learn you Have from the it. experience. It yeah. may be a negative experience, but learn from it and do things yeah. differently and develop as an individual. Yeah, definitely. And the, you know, it's a cliche, it was a cliche but you do learn a lot more from the adversity. You know, it's not the... um the success that really teaches you that's nice and it kind of i suppose it motivates you and it's a lovely feeling 
Um, and it's lovely to f- share that with a team of people and to see them grow. And we had some people like my brother and I had a marketing girl who came through, you know, started as a cleaner, you know, she, and unbelievable. And she's done really well for herself now. Um, and that's those things that, you know, that's some of the success. Which You talk, is, you talk about your team with a lot of pride. Is that one of the things you look back on from the oh, little side yeah. yeah, definitely. And, you know, we added people in steadily. You know, we were careful about how we recruited and you know we were quite prudent i suppose with having had these experiences you know we were quite prudent about how we spent money um whether it was on the brand people or you know the infrastructure but we could see the opportunity by investing in these things i think we're quite ballsy anyway Mm. um as evidenced by the fact that we were suing a taiwanese multinational but you know the 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 team and the development of that team uh, was definitely something that you know i consider one of the greatest successes of Linzar. Fantastic. And what size did you get to? So at its peak? Uh, so we got to, I think it was about 15 or so in the office and a further, um, there was maybe 15, 18 that were out distributed around the country. So they worked for the business as sales agents, um, which was, you know, they were selling other product as well into our customers, but we managed them and, you know, we, brought them very close to us um, and managed them really as, as, as members of our own team. And from a turnover perspective? So we got to um, about, so we had two businesses because we actually, I'll go on to that in a second, but within Linzar we got to about seven and a half, um, which was, yeah, you know. Phenomenal growth in a short period of time. In quite a short, yeah. you know, that was after about five years. Um, so, and I think we could, we could always, we always felt like we could grow more if we could get more product. Yeah. And we always had kind of one hand, held behind our back by the factory and you know their appetite for business kind of ebbed and flowed so one minute they want all your business next minute they're kind of looking at the um the ledger and saying we're not overdue but it's too big Mm. so it's quite a challenge and i suppose that is the risk of being a minnow in a big big industry isn't it is that actually you you know when they want when the supplier wants you Mm. you've got some weight to it but when they don't and when sony and panasonic or other big brands put demands on them, they can put the squeeze effectively on your yeah. business and you, you can't con- control it in no. the same way that perhaps you can a services business. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, what I've learned, one of the things I've t- come out of that and obviously worked in, in other projects and actually working with lots of other business leaders on their businesses uh, as a coach, as a, yeah. uh, as part of Evolve, um, and, you know, talking to these people is, you know, going into something like Linzar, which is this um, very, very mature, very commoditized, very cutthroat marketplace where you've got a small, you've got this interesting dynamic where you have a small number of suppliers, very dominant suppliers. You have a small number of retail outlets because that's shrunk so much over the years. I mean, everyone from Rumbelows to Courts to Comet yeah. to Tempo to, I mean, up, there's yeah. loads of them. Um, they've all gone. And, you know, the shrinkage in the independent sector is in the thousands uh, over the last 20 odd years. So, you know, you've got a very strange dynamic in the marketplace and because of the commoditization, it means the margins are under pressure. So we grew our margins spectacularly over the years by working out how to add more value to the product. So it might have been a five-year warranty. It might have been a free USB stick that meant that people could pause live TV. You know, there's all sorts of different things that we did to expand our margin because the one of the things I'm very proud of is, you know, yes, we did 1.2 million in our first year, um, but that was a sort of 6% margin because we didn't have any overhead. So, you know, it's quite good for a sort of startup 
uh, business that's not had any funding and we've just literally grown it from scratch. But the change in turnover from 1.2 between 1.2 and 5 million, which is only three years or something, the margin went from at a gross level from 6% to over 30%. And that's by adding more value to the product and more service Mm -hmm. to the retailer. Exactly. But in order to do that, to keep up with that, we had to then invest a lot more. We had to spend money on the team. We had to obviously invest in the brand. um, And we had to invest in the infrastructure that meant that we could deliver really quickly and reliably ones and twos and fives and tens and pallets and actually full containers into uh, in of product into into retailers and that's the big logistics challenge and then you get this logistics challenge but you know we ended up with our own we got a little two and a half thousand square foot warehouse which we leased at bournemouth airport um, then we found ran out of space there very quickly. There was some great video that stacked to the. I mean, the pallets. I don't know how high the pallets were, but they were mm. quite a way over the uh, yeah. what they should have been. And they were outside. I mean, we used to rain. You had to go and put bits of cardboard on top of the pallets and all sorts of bonkers things. Stock in third party warehouses that used to get stolen because they're televisions mm. and everyone wants to steal televisions. So we end up with another warehouse, um, and then we said, no, we've got to find somewhere that's big enough to grow into to do all the stuff. And we're getting more and more ambitious as time's going on because we're making less mistakes. Yeah. We're making more money. And, um, you know, I think we just we, – we also won the John Lewis own brand business. So we were supplying televisions and some other products into John Lewis under their brand, under okay. a separate company. And that company did a couple of million quid in its first year. So, you know, at one point between the two businesses, yeah. we were, you know, in quite good shape. Imagine 10 million pounds. Yeah. Good margin. Good, good good margins. You know, we were, everybody was winning off the back of it. The retailers were, um, I suppose, the disbelief had subsided that these crazy guys had gone out and set their own brand The naysayers up. had disappeared. The naysayers had gone quiet. Yeah. And, um, you know, we had lovely stands at the exhibitions. You know, we really kind of were going places, um, starting to attract some attention in terms of some of the awards, getting involved with, um, you know, some other marketing projects with uh, 20th Century Fox and with Virgin Media and other people. And then, you know, we, we said, well, let's put a load of cash into um, into our own warehouse because having an, a, a fixed, a decent fixed asset like that actually helped us. It helped us in lots of ways because we rented out space in the warehouse, which then covered the cost of the warehouse all the mortgage all the warehouse staff so it became cost neutral to have this twelve and a half thousand square foot warehouse in pool um, but actually when we looked at it initially the cost of the mortgage was less than what we were paying in rent and third-party storage for stock and obviously we were you know suffering with shrinkage it was operationally very difficult on the team to keep shifting this stock around as a nightmare so <clears throat> we went into this building which was you know it was really really good but also having the asset meant we could switch to a better invoice discounting product that we get that we get more cash because this is a really cash hungry business. You want to add another model into your into your lineup, you got to buy a whole container of it. Mm. So you've got to turn that stock around very quickly. But then part of the value we're adding to the retailers is that we've got stock and it's on demand and we're acting if you like as a distributor. Here's your ones and twos. Yeah. yeah so we we are the manufacturer but we're also the distributor we're also then the guys that are fixing the tellies and doing all sorts of we have engineers we have people in the uh, the building we're carrying spare parts you know the, the cash requirement to grow that business yeah. because you've got even if you've got a 30 percent margin well you can net that down to 10 percent to you know you need a lot of 10 percent to buy another container because of the size you know you've got thousands of and 
thousands upon thousands of products in a container. And what also happened over the first four years is the packaging guys got cleverer and cleverer and cleverer. So the amount of packaging around, let's say, a 24-inch TV or 32-inch TV shrunk by about 70%. So suddenly, you know, you'd have a 20-foot container or a 40-foot container with a, few, a couple of hundred small screen TVs in. By the end of it, there was a thousand small screen TVs in the same space. So the cash implication of that yeah, is cash demands, so much cash bigger because you can't these. you can't buy them in you're not buying them in pallets. And they're putting your old, your brand on it. And as time went on, we customized the product more and more. So we had some of our own software in there. We had some of our own look and feel. And particularly as we started to go out more to China, you know, we literally had a completely unique product that won a load of awards and a which best buy and all this stuff. So. You know, lots to be proud of, Barry. Lots to be proud of, yeah. Definitely. In 2016, you did exit Rinzar. Yes. What did it feel like at that point to sort of exit the business that you'd founded and had that passion for? <clears throat> well, the, so you know, the exit was a was a so a complicated and another stressful event, I would say, because the business was put into a difficult position by the one of the main suppliers. Um, you know, they had you know, I suppose gone that they changed what they wanted from their business. Um, so they were looking to focus more on being the sausage machine for the big supermarkets and then producing for some of the big Japanese brands that they'd licensed. So they'd kind of developed some new licenses with the likes of Toshiba, which, you know, have a particularly in the UK, um, some pedigree or had some pedigree. And I think that, you know, we just became a small customer you know we were still in their top 10 in the uk but we became a small customer for them and that but then i suppose they you know their their whole mantra changed so we lost a sale for full value actually that was probably 80 percent of the way there um, from conversations that we've been having um and then found ourselves in the difficult position of having to so you know, actually, you know, we've got all this overhead. We're burning cash very quickly. We've got orders coming out of our ears. I mean, we're. I think the last count of orders was about one point two million pounds worth of orders from customers. Very profitable, no issue with all of that stuff. But if you can't get the product, you can't get the product. You can't fulfill the orders. You can't can fulfill you? the orders, and you can't suddenly switch to another factory. Normally, if you had a problem with the supplier, or they, you know, we we always knew that this was a risk in the business, and we'd taken these steps over the years whether it was the Taiwanese factory or there was actually another another um, one where we got let down by Beko because they were producing TVs at the time and they were um, the main rival to this other factory. And they said, well, actually, about a week before the product was supposed to turn up that time, they said, um, this was about year four. This might have been the year four problem. Um, they It was about April time and we were expecting new product to launch into Easter because that's when you, you know, kind of bring out all your new stuff. And they said there's been a directive from their main management. They're going to stop uh, exporting brown goods, so TVs, brown goods, obviously washing machines and so on, are white goods. And we ended up selling white goods, actually. We sell washing machines, tumble dryers, dishwashers, okay, lot. the whole lot, yeah. Because um, we had the space to do it and it yeah. was you know, natural progression. But in a day, they turned around and said, no, sorry, we can't supply the product because we had a directive not supplying anybody. So all the orders for all the UK customers had to be cancelled. Um, so we got our fingers burnt. So we had our fingers burnt trying to shift other suppliers several times. Um, we're getting more and more product from China, um, and that was starting to develop more. But the problem with China at the time was a lot of the big factories hadn't 
paid licenses, you know, their technology licenses because they hadn't had to. Suddenly they're getting into the West and they've got some better product and they're getting more, um, I suppose, ambitious with what they're doing. And then all the licensing companies who, you know, I mean, there's some big, big um, outfits are all coming to them saying, well, if you want to export into the UK market, you're going to have to pay all the back rent for all the stuff that you've produced over the last 10 years, which is millions and billions, you know, huge amounts of money. Um, so and we wouldn't buy product as a business that wasn't licensed. No. Because, you know, I mean, people, people, for... people were at the yeah. time, you know, okay. made no mistake. Um, and some well-known names were, but I won't mention any names, no. obviously. <laughs> and um, there's some crazy stuff that used to go on, but we couldn't get enough. But the, the really good Chinese factories, uh, we were getting some product from. Yeah. And, um, you know, we wanted to get more and more product from them, but they weren't quite ready with the technical development. And, of course, the cash you need when you then – because of the extra month of on the water, yeah. the cash requirement. Work capital requirement. Work capital requirement just through just the roof again, absolutely through the roof. So, and actually, then you know, you, it just means that the business has to then contract somehow yeah. because you can't if you if you're ten, you know if you're five million quid or seven million quid worth of business is reliant on a spread of models. You can only sell a certain number of each TV size, mm -hmm. so you need the range of product in your offering in order to maintain that level of turnover so if you start plug, pulling individual models out of that um then all that happens is your turnover goes down mm. and it's, you can't make up that shortfall by selling well, you can sell more of your other products but yeah it might be but you've cost created of your, your nation you've got your retailers you've, you've got they it, want across they, they want it yeah they, they want a they range want a, yeah, yeah, they're a buying range, a range really. of product um so so that became very difficult so we you know we had to go then and said, well, what are our options? You know, suddenly we've got, we've gone from this, you know, got, gone through, we've got through a lot of different problems over the years successfully. Yeah. And there's others as well, which, um, you know, talk about over a beer sometime, yeah. but you know, we're all these successes, you know, we've got all the stuff, you know, great team of people really motivated. Um, you know, the sales guys are out there selling, we've got orders coming out of our ears, you know, what do you do? Um, and because, we got to the stage where so we're burning cash. We've, we've, you know, we've reshaped things as best we can. Um, we're about to get, actually enough, we're about to win a, another contract to fill our warehouse with other third-party product, mm. which would have been worth, you know, it's half a million quid a year's worth of um, of work. And that, you know, you can start to find ways of seeing your way through a short-term issue to then work out what the long-term looks like. Um, but you know we couldn't, and we ran out. We started running out of cash. Started looking at well, how, you know, how are we going to pay suppliers? We've got all these assets. You know, we're a decent amount of money sat in the building, um, but we're stuffed, and yeah. we had to call administrators in. So, um, <clears throat> and I remember sitting down with them, and yeah. you know, uh, I mean, we've been through all these things. We've been through a fraud. You know, we had um, over two hundred thousand quid's worth of televisions go out the door to fraudsters, and. Um, yeah, we were properly insured and we kind of yeah. managed things, you know, things like that. Um, we kind of dealt with yeah. and, you know, we got to the end of that and to have that happen. And I remember sitting down with Terry going, what, what else can we do? You know, suddenly we were in this position yeah. where, you know, as directors of the company, we have a responsibility. Well, duties and responsibilities. responsibilities and yeah. to the team around you. Absolutely. And to your customers. Uh, and then, yeah. And then, then you're into this, whole well then ultimately you know the business was bought by um a, an australian multinational who knew of us wanted to get into the uk market and saw that saw it as a i suppose a, a good value way yeah. of doing it because they bought the 
um, the brand uh, and a lot of the assets of the business, uh, obviously not for less than you know for less than they're worth. So then, um, you know, I went to China to go and look at all their factories. Uh, I was out there for two weeks while everything was just falling apart in the UK. Uh, I spent two weeks really with about an hour's sleep a night because I was working in the factories every day going around seeing all the factories and then managing all the fallout in the UK with you know team I mean with everybody yeah, just trying to make this deal happen just trying to, keep to make the brand just trying, and keep... try, trying to keep the deal alive yeah. because that meant that people kept their jobs and they yeah. would be transferred over to the you know new company uh, ultimately customers would get their uh, would get their orders but you know it was a nightmare you know it was it was really hard and then you kind of on the phone to People say, well, you know, it might have to enact personal guarantees. Your house could be on the line. Um, as it happened, we had enough to cover you know, yeah. what was owed to banks and people like that. But, um, yeah, it was it was pretty pretty horrible to be traveling around China, um, you know, having to, to sort of fight that fight um, from, from there. Because from you feel, afar without your support you feel, network, you feel without completely your family, distant without from it. Yeah, yeah. And Terry was there as well. So, you know, we, we were yeah. out there together. Okay. Um, but then coming back to that and then, you know, I worked for the – uh, acquirers mm. for about a year um, and then got out a little bit earlier compared to what we were uh, planning because yeah. that suited me and it suited them um, and then and can you know maintain the brand and actually what we found which was sort of I suppose I'm kind of proud of but sort of at the same time sad about was just the level of support and loyalty that existed within the market for the Linzar brand. Mm. And still to this day, you know, it's regarded by its customers as a great brand. And, you know... The, and that brand is still in the market? That brand's still in the market. It's still in um, Euronics. It's still in John Lewis. It's still in 600-odd independent retailers around the country. Um, Terry carried on working for, uh, for, for the acquirers. And um, as I say, I left... Um, to to pursue other other interests, yeah. and in hindsight, and hindsight's one of the thing it only yeah. ever kicks you in the teeth. But is there anything you'd have done differently? You must have reflected and thought. Yeah, but there's there's you know, I think it spawned an interest in me in personal development in you know the I suppose development and acquisition of resilience over time and looking at those things. The hindsight value comes. You know, I, don't, I don't think there's a lot. Um, there's nothing really. There's no positive feeling to be gained from from looking at it in that way. I try and look at it as look back and say, well, what have I learned? You know, there's mm. there's the successes and there's the good stuff, um, and there's this, the stuff that I'm proud of. The thing there's loads of things that I would have done differently. Um, I would have probably sought advice um, earlier. I would have probably we would have tried to sell the business earlier because. Mm. Actually, the value in the brand to a distributor was really high. At a point, it must have At had a, point, a it was, significant value. Yeah, and you know, HSBC were telling us it was worth millions, um, yeah. based just based purely on uh, profit multiple. Yeah. Um, never mind the goodwill of getting into John Lewis and you know uh, some other big retailers. That's an, in- that's an interesting piece, isn't it? And I, I do think some of us as business owners, entrepreneurs, sometimes do hold on a bit too long. Yeah. And but I think it's because we've got a passion and a love and a creativity of what we get into and find. But there's there's one guy uh, called Andy, and he's he's very successful. He's, he's created a lot of wealth, um, gets a lot of balance in his life. Mm. And he used, he t- said to me this mantra that stayed with me. And he said it probably within a month or two of me starting to inspire. And I haven't quite lived to it, although I've done a few things from time to time. 
little and often. Hmm. Don't go for the big transaction. Just creating wealth is about just taking a little bit off the table, but doing it frequently and not going, spinning the dice yeah. for that one big kind of jackpot moment. And it's quite an interesting philosophy and we're all different, hmm. but it's a different perspective, isn't it? it? It is, yeah. And I think when we were you know, right stuck into it, you know, you've got two people that are ambitious, that are optimistic, that are driven, that know the market, that know their customers, yeah. um, supported by a great team, got the infrastructure to make things happen. You know, it comes down why to would you why, wouldn't, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you pursue this and yeah. see what's see what's possible? Um, and actually, the I suppose you're a little bit caught up into it as well yeah. because you're still working, you know, right under the bonnet of it. And um, you know, for me personally, getting involved with there was a business networking group called Beacon, which is like a peer group yeah. thing at the time, doesn't exist now, but that was the start of me really getting and under you know getting to know other business leaders certainly locally. Um, we ultimately that's how we met yeah, because definitely. the people that I met through that then connected me into the wider business network yeah. um, around here. And I think under, going then understanding that and understanding other challenges, I found it always very comforting when I'd go and see another business and they'd talk about what a challenge it was that day or what their burning issue was or something like that. I found a lot of comfort in that, in that not the only people that are just like battling and fighting here all the time, um, because you know that's kind of life and yeah. that's kind of business isn't it um so i've become quite sort of sanguine about it all and just you know say well i went through that and there's some great stuff and there's not some not great stuff i, I had a learning experience through that that very few people get um you know some people get it and then come out of it and they're completely broken yeah. i'm not fortunately and you know i credit the gym and other friends and you know i suppose a general mindset with that um, because it was hard um, and, you know, supportive family, all those sorts of things, you know, all, all, all has so much value when you're facing these things. Um, but there's, there's nothing, you know, the regret, yeah, I wish I'd sold it earlier because that would make but things that is definitely different. a hindsight one. That's a definite hindsight one. You know, would I have, I suppose we at the time we knew the problems, we knew what the challenges were and we were working hard to try and find solutions to them. Um I mean, if you go right back, I probably wouldn't have gone into the TV industry in the first place. It's so bloody hard. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's other things that are far easier to sell yeah. and you know have greater margins, have more customers to choose from, more suppliers to choose from, all this sort of stuff. But, but it is what you know. And we all start, know. I think, you know, it's very rare. And we've had some great guests in the podcast <clears> that have started businesses in sort of industries or services that they're not mm. got experience in. But most of us who start a business... Mm start it off the back of some experience and knowledge yeah. within a product or a service or a sector or a yeah. vertical market that's how we do it isn't it we go make our mistakes make some yeah. mistakes learn our industry and then yeah. we have this desire to do it for ourselves yeah i agree and you know, i still made mistakes so it was tvs for you it was, it was accountancy for me. for me yeah and but you know i've gone on from that and then yeah. found other things and it's part of the journey yeah again, and i think then yeah, then you see the journey in in the different perspective and you see the, the i suppose more of the journey and you're less caught up in the in the trees and you see it as something that you know actually has you know it makes some aspects of life hard at different times but actually the value that that has to me having done what I've done since has been absolutely huge, you know, and the path I'm on now that I can see in front of me is more exciting than it ever was. I think at any point in the run up to where I am right now. 
Great. Well, let's go on to that. So what are you up to now? What's currently, well, as we enter 2021, what are you up to Yeah, now? so I'm, I'm still, um, you know, I'm working with clients to help them, particularly uh, the businesses like Linzar, where I can go in and help them develop in the right way, make less mistakes, you know, understand how to sell to bigger customers safely and things like that. Um, and I'm, I'm passionate about leadership and about engagement. And when I talk about the team that we had at Linzar and how uh, you know we developed the culture that sort of supported that, um, you know, helping other businesses do that is really important. But the big project that I'm working on is uh, something called NetHabit. And NetHabit will enable parents to improve the safety of their children online and uh, more easily. It's an app. So the app will show the parent exactly how to uh, take action to improve their child's online safety, keep them up to date with what's happening. It's a very fast-moving problem. And it's a problem that's got um, exponentially worse through COVID as children are spending more time in front of devices. So um, that's quite an exciting. It's completely different to TVs. Obviously, it's a technology focused business and my understanding of how you set things up and you know i suppose the tech understanding yeah. was always there you know tvs really became computers some years ago um and how to set them up and how through I mean, that's an interesting light bulb moment just now you know when you're trying to explain to somebody how to do something in simple terms with whatever device they have in front of them it stems from the earliest days in the consumer electronics market. And I used to work for Curry's at one point. I was on the shop floor for a few years, okay. uh, selling selling everything. And um, but helping those customers make sense of whatever it is that they've got in front of them actually is related to, I suppose, trying to help a parent take action to change settings, to have conversations with their children, whatever that action might be. Um, yeah, so there's a little bit of a yeah. sort of le- helpline legacy in a sense there. It's not a helpline, but... Um, yeah, but that philosophy... A of, philosophy yeah. of actually just take something that's quite complicated, make it simple, make it easy, and help people understand you know, that they can make progress and that they can actually improve things for their children. So that's a really exciting product to be working on going yeah, forward. Yeah, it is. And, it, you know, it comes... So, you know, where does it come from? I mean, it's, so I've got two children. I've got, yeah. um, you know, as you know, Finamir... And, uh, you know, Finn's accidentally spent some money on uh, one of his games a few years ago. And that caught me out because I thought we were pretty well covered. Uh, you know, and I've worried about uh, who they're contacting, what they might see. And, you know, as they get older, you know, there'll be other challenges that we face as parents of this generation of yeah. children who, excuse me, are completely connected. You know, their parents, their friends are all, all connected. They're now connected to the schools using these platforms as well. So, you know, the parents need help to take action to understand what they need to do. And it's a service, really. It's a, it's a, it's a, SaaS, it's a effectively a SaaS business. But, yeah, it's very exciting, very scalable. It um, has some great relationships already forged with some great routes to market, some people that are you know, helping with the development of it. So, um, yeah, very exciting. And it'll sit really nicely, I suppose, alongside the consultancy business. Yeah, so, you know, well, I, I love working with other businesses because it's easy it's easier to see um you have a different perspective when you look at somebody else's business because there's no emotional connection to it you can just look at it and say well you know this is what i think is good this is what i don't think is so good and i think having been through what i've been through and having had people coach me having had support and seeing the value of that so i'm I'm totally sold on that and i wish i'd got 
more support earlier in my journey with Linzar, that's for sure. Because I would have made less mistakes and I would, you know, might have been in a different position, who knows. But, you know, going into that, but I'm also hugely respectful of the fact that you've got an individual in front of you or a team in front of you that knows what they're doing, you know, is passionate about what they, they do. And, you know, that kind of respectful challenge um, is something that, yeah, I think is really important. Brilliant. So one last question, Barry. After all of that, the journey you've been on, what you're up to now, how would you define success? So I think success is being slightly better than you were the day before. Okay. So that's back to that growth mindset. Yes. Yeah. Personal development. I think if you just... improving as an individual. Ex- exactly. If you can just be better and, and better is, you know, is happier, healthier, um, you know, more uh, connected to the people around you, you know, all those kind of sort of softer things. I think if you can just do that, then um, that, that, that to me is success. I love that response. Barry, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they find you? How can they connect so with you? So I'm on LinkedIn and um, I have a website called it's primal-skills.com and I'm at uh, Barry at primal-skills.com. Brilliant. Barry, we've known each other a long time. I've learned things today about you and your journey. It's been great to have you as a guest on the Evolved Success Podcast. Thank you, Warren. Appreciate it. Thank you. I thought Barry's story was a great example of how often when you start your first business, you end up being responsible for everything in those early stages and how that can be both fulfilling and extremely challenging. Barry's accounts of his adaptability and determination to succeed despite several stumbling blocks are a great lesson to anybody running a business. But I think that if any one of you listening today is either starting a business or thinking about it, Barry's story is a particularly good example of the highs and lows and complexities of such an undertaking. And what he said at the end about the value of seeking advice, whether through a coach, a peer or friends, I thought was particularly pertinent in the context of Evolve. If you do want further insightful content and inspiration and find out more about the coaching, peer groups and other services offered by Evolve, then please do go to evolvemembers.com. There, you can register to be part of our community and to receive our weekly newsletter. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and if so, please do rate, review and subscribe to future episodes. I look forward to you joining me again next week. 